this morning I'd like to speak about a element or aspect of meditation which is equally an element and an aspect of any form of sincere spiritual practice I think and it's the element of practice and the, the way of approaching what we're doing which understands it and frames it as a process of inquiry as a process of investigation, of looking into and I'd like to speak particularly with regard to a question that we might hold that investigation in that might frame that quality of investigation for us and with that the the quality of investigation as a, as a part of our practice, as part of what we engage in, was uh, once referred to when one of the Buddha's senior disciples was asked, what is the, the factor of awakening which leads directly, which conduces directly to awakening of the various factors which contribute? What is the one which is the most direct link to that possibility, to that potential which is there? And the response which the Buddha later endorsed as correct was that it is in fact investigation. Investigation is the factor which conduces most directly to discovery, to realization, to awakening, to the truth. And so this area of our practice, this, this possibility of, of exploring, having a real deep spirit of exploration, can sometimes crystallize, can focus for us either quite intentionally or quite unexpectedly around the question or the form of question that may express itself as who am I? Or what is the truth of this experience in this moment or equally in its incomprehensible totality? And so in the way we talk about practice often there's quite a lot of emphasis given initially to the establishment of a connection with our actual experience. Grounding ourselves in the here and now rather than dwelling in the past and in the future. Learning to meet our experience directly. Not through our images, not through our ideas, our concepts and our associations, but through what's actually there. Through what we can sense with immediacy through the direct, in a way, sensory equipment that we have, the, the, the ability to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, receive thoughts and feelings. And as we, as we do that, as we connect, as we become more grounded in our actual experience, we find that there's a, there's a sense of a harmonizing, of a steadying, of our not necessarily our experience, but our sense of what it is to be experiencing. And so the experience can still fluctuate wildly and often does, but just in that continuously and um, sort of in a committed way coming back again and again, there's a sense of, of a harmonizing of our capacity to meet our experience and a degree of steadiness that comes with that. And in that steadiness, in that sense of harmony or connectedness that, again, isn't necessarily an experience because we can, in the midst of it, be 
feeling quite fragmented, we can feel scattered, confused, distracted, and yet there can be a sense of just something a little bit larger, a container in which all of that is happening, in which all of that is just somehow perhaps okay. And even if it's not okay, that that's okay. Just just that sense of being, of presence that comes through the, the cultivation of attentiveness, through receptivity, through steadiness. And that provides a foundation. It provides a platform. It's In some ways one could speak of it as an end in itself, and in practice it sometimes can be, and yet it's equally an offering, a potential, a, um, a place from which we can look more deeply, we can explore, rather than simply resting in a complete opening to what comes. It can be a more active or engaged element that we bring into it in the form of an investigation, in a, in a sense of looking beyond the appearances, rather actively. And to really stop and acknowledge how much weight, how much belief we have in appearances and how often, even in our meditation, we, we take the first appearance of things as being what's actually there, what's actually happening. And so i just like to relate a, a short story or uh, an experience that happened earlier in the year which I thought illustrated this for myself rather well. That I was actually sitting one morning at home, and I think it was in January or February, in the, the winter early in the year. And in the room it was quite cool, the window was open. I'd just recently actually had to trim the edges of the window because it wouldn't close, that's why the window was open. And I just opened my eyes at the end of the sitting and, and just there in front of me, which I was sitting facing out the window, on the sill, there was a little snail. And it was rather beautiful. There was a very sort of tender, vulnerable quality about its body and its, its shell and the beautiful spiral markings and the, just the, the quivering of the little antennae as they sort of moved and, and it was on the windowsill. And I was looking there and I was thinking, gosh, it must have come in through the open window. And I was immediately struck just by the incredibleness of this creature. It's just in the way we sometimes are when we're in a place of quietness, stillness within, and we just contact something. And then the thought arose within me, oh gosh, there's nothing for it to eat in this room. What, what will it do? How, how will it survive? And I thought, I could put it outside where the food is, but actually it's really cold, it might die. And it seemed like there was sort of a dilemma. What, what am I going to do with a snail? It's come in because I left the window open, but if I leave it here, it's going to die. If I put it out, maybe it's going to die as well. And then I um, thought a bit further, oh no, I can put it in the, um, the greenhouse. But um, it's not ours, it's sort of like our neighbours effectively. But it's on, it was on the same um, sort of estate. And I thought, well, probably the, the gardener won't be too happy if I do that. But they won't know and the snail will be happy and I'll be happy. Um, and hopefully I won't eat too many of the, the plants growing in there. So I, I had this ah, solution, oh, I solved this problem. And so I just started to get up and reached over towards the snail. And as I got closer I realised it was a wood shaving from when I'd trimmed the, um, the window and painted it. And this whole process, this whole story had arisen on the basis of a misperception, a complete fabrication, an illusion. 
And all of it happened because in the first moment there was this image that was there that somehow reminded something in me of a snail. And yet I saw that snail. I saw those little beady eyes on the end of the stalks moving around at a, at a range of six feet. So you've got to, you know, to see that little thing. But it wasn't there. It couldn't have been there. Yeah, I saw it. And that kind of experience, which perhaps we've had our, all of us at times in meditation or outside, where we just suddenly see through an appearance. We just suddenly see that the way we thought something was, and perhaps the whole construction that we made upon that appearance, was not the truth. It was not the truth. And, and that kind of moment, that kind of experience, can really bring us back to a a deep spirit of inquiry, of a sense of investigating, of looking beyond appearances. When we're in a place, particularly in our practice, where there's a reasonable sense of focus, of steadiness, of connectedness, that we can really use that to look, what, what is the truth of our own experience? What is the truth of the fact that we are here? What does it fundamentally come down to? Not just, you know, body, sort of thoughts, clothes, hot, cold, whatever. Yeah, that's part of it. But is there more? Is there more to it than that? And to not accept the ideas and the images or the positions that come from either the scientific, the scientific views and the materialistic views of, oh yes, you know, biological organism, you know, DNA and all that, um, sort of, the spark of life is actually a bunch of chemicals and um, you know then at some point they will stop doing their thing and it returns to a bunch of compost you know that, that's sort of more the scientific model or equally various spiritual views and models of what this is that we can um, hear from you know Buddhist traditions equally as uh, Christian or other religions that, that sort of give us some story of oh you know some divine act or some process that arose and Give rise, gave rise to this existence, whether it be you know, the, the hand of God that moved or this ineffable ignorance that gave rise to us all, depending on our particular religious persuasion, that in a way that doesn't really answer the question. It's sort of, you know, what is this or how did it get to be here? It doesn't really answer that question. It just can be a comfortable way to avoid it, but really not much more. So just bringing it back to what's happening. Investigating our five sense door experiences in the mind, because that's all that's happening. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts and feelings. That's all that's happening. That's all that has ever been happening in your experience and all that ever will. And look what we do with them. Look and watch how we use them to create something how we take them and we tell ourselves these continuing stories about me and mine, about you and yours. And how we, how we, we use our experience to inflate, to gratify our sense of who we are, to create a, a positive, a comfortable, a flattering image or sense. Or equally at times to somehow run down, to deny or to, in an unhealthy way, deflate our sense of self-worth or well-being through some critical, judgmental, 
evaluation of these experiences that are happening. And with that evaluation, whether it be a positive or a negative evaluation, together with that, an, an attribution, a, an taking possession of them as mine, as ours. Or equally a projecting and watching someone else to them as something which is theirs. To see, is this me? Is this mine? To really look at it, what does that mean? What would it mean if this was me? If this was me, what would it mean? In any way? It would, perhaps we might hope, mean that if this was me, um, it was sort of reliable. It was amenable to following my wishes for it. And we clearly see that that's not the case. The thoughts in our mind, the sensations in our body, follow their own life. We can influence them to some degree. But it's not much use in them being who we are if they don't do what we tell them. And equally we can sometimes say, well it's not me, because you know I can see they're changing and they're sort of out of control. It's not me really, it's sort of something that I happen to own. It's sort of more a sense of mine that we relate to them with. And this can just be a, a similar form of the same mistake, the sense of it's mine. But again, is it appropriate to call it mine if it's really not in our control? To just really ask that question. If, and because what's left, if, if we really ask it, we say this isn't so much me, then what is left for the sense of I? What is left of what we might imagine ourselves to be if it is not the sense experiences, if it is not the mind that we experience? And see how much time we spend in an unquestioned building up of those images. In in, in the way we, we we might be saying after a, you know, a sitting that we're relatively still and go, oh, it was a good sitting, I'm, I'm a good meditator, my retreat's finally coming together. Or at lunchtime when we only take a modest amount of food, I'm a great renunciate, you know, I finally got this. And, and there's, there's a sense of just, 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 maybe we're not even articulating that, but there's just a subtle sense of, ah, good, good. Or, or that, that, that there's a sense of sort of focus and continuity in our practice. And these things are all, they can all be helpful, they can all be useful, but just to watch what we do with them. Watch if there's a grasping, a taking hold of them. Because it's a setup. It's a setup when we do it. For when then the sitting is totally fragmented and we're scattered and in all forms of sort of restlessness and discomfort, that then it's a bad sitting and we're no good. And we've lost it. We, we can barely hold our meditation together. It's the kind of story that comes out. And we're bound into that position by having taken hold in the first place of the other. And equally if one time in the lunch queue it just happens to be our favourite meal, it's lasagna or sort of nut roast or, or just something we really like and we find that despite all our sort of mindfulness and that we're saying, oh yes, moderation, moderation, just a bit more moderation and we're walking out there with this plate we can sort of, you know, we have to lean backwards so we're not overbalancing. And we get down there and we eat it all and it was great, but then afterwards we realise what we've done. And, oh no, I peaked out, you know, I lost it completely. I thought I'm going to be dozy for sort of the next three days recovering. And again, the whole trip that can be generated 
of negativity, just around a simple thing that happened, and around the sense of self that's again built out of it. Built in this case negatively, but still built, constructed, fabricated, added to what actually happened, added on top of the experience that, yeah, wanting, desire, large amount of food, eating, full, tired afterwards, sleeping perhaps. That's the experience. And what is added to it? And how we look at each other. Because it's totally part of it. This isn't just looking at self, investigating that sense of who am I, is not separate from the way we project who someone else is. And we see someone doing something and we think, wow, that's really great. They were really great meditator. Or we see someone else doing something and I think, boy, that's not okay. Or that's kind of off, you know. And we, we somehow see ourselves just quickly categorizing someone for the fact that they stumbled while walking or, you know, wavered a little bit or all of their plate is very full and they're a, obviously a bit of a pig or equally their plate has only got, you know, a, a mere morsel on it and they're some, you know, great and highly realized renunciate. And, and we, we, we do that. And, and when we're doing it with other people, it's at the same time subtly reinforcing our own sense of self. These two things can't happen apart from each other. And so seeing, asking this question is to challenge that whole process. To be willing to put it down and to see if in the absence of that construction and that creating and that fabricating that goes on, that building up that goes on, to see what is revealed in its absence. To see what is left if we take that away or just simply let that go. So where does the question go? Where, where, where do you meet? Where does that question meet you? Who am I? Or equally one might find, what is this? What is this? Is there space for that question to come in? Or is it a little too challenging, too threatening, too uncomfortable? Or is it just, it might just be meaningless words from someone sitting in front, may not relate. But there might be another question that's there for you, that does connect, that does, in a way, just run a bit deeper. In some ways our whole practice is based on this question. Not the form of it, not is it who am I or what is this or how does it all get here, but this deep inner questioning that, that takes us in, that takes us in. Not in a you know, physical or geographical way, but perhaps you have a sense of what that means. When one penetrates below the surface appearance, and below the attachment for creating an organized structure of appearances out of our experience, wanting to put them in categories and places so we know how to relate to them. It's actually going beyond that, that need and that addiction we often have. That's just questioning, questioning. I, I remember having a very powerful experience of this once practicing in India. And, and it, was, it felt like the questions were of, of who am I and, and what is this? that they were, it was like almost a cannon going off, just these explosions, just in the, in, in the very depths of the being, just, and just shaking, and just shaking, and just shaking. And in that, that just the, the sense of the, the potency of the question, the potency of the question, and also the sense that those questions were the same. Who am I, or what is this? Same question, same question.
and it, it, it asks of us a total presence. It, it not just asks of us, it, it in a way invites us into a sense of total presence, where, where the question is a way of a way of meeting our experience, which, which we're not seeking answers, we're seeking truth. And to understand the difference, not that the question isn't moving towards an answer, it's not a question and answer, it's actually a movement towards truth. It's a, it's a recognition of what is truly important, what is truly worthy of the fullness of our attention, of the the steadiness and focus of our inner gaze, as it were. And, and that in seeing that we're not seeking answers, we, we have to be willing to acknowledge that we can't answer these questions from our minds. There is no place that our mind could hold those questions in a way that it can answer them. And that's why they can be rather uncomfortable. That's why we don't always like actually to confront them. But in in trusting that it's okay that we can't answer the question with our minds, that our our intellect, our conceptual structures cannot get a grip on the question, they they actually are in that process quite appropriately humbled, quite appropriately shown their own limitations and the ability to construct and to fabricate and to work within the realm of appearances has its place and its importance but equally it's very clear limitations and practice invites us to go beyond those limitations our mind in a way it's humbled into silence by the, the significance, by the import, by the impact of the questioning itself. The questioning, perhaps more precisely than the question. Because it's that questioning that has the potency there. And when we can open into that, that questioning, when we can open into that inner inquiry, it's a letting go into not knowing the letting go into the humbling of the intellect. And yet, in the space that that reveals, in the space that that makes accessible, what we can find is that our heart responds. I'm not speaking here of heart in terms of emotion, but perhaps in a, in a, in a deeper sense of a place of, of understanding, of wisdom, that, that, that runs at a deeper level than the, the intellectual mind. The heart responds in some ways. The, the, the essence of the being quivers or even simply reveals itself in some way, in some way. There's no model for how that might be. It might be different for each of us. But there's a sense of a response. There's a sense of something being touched, something that speaks to us, not in words, but in, in understanding. <coughs> in a sense of resonance with truth, with our truth and with the truth, which are not other 
than the same. And from that that place of resonance, from that being touched through the process of questioning, through inquiring into, being touched deeply in the way that we feel some response from a from a place of understanding that doesn't frame the understanding in words, doesn't fix the understanding in in language or in consciousness even, but just is there. There's a way in which our sense of our life can perhaps shift, can be transformed. And the, there's, a, there's a sense of a solidity and a, a fixedness about holding a sense of who we are. It's kind of like a being a, a frozen block of ice. There's a, there's a hardness, there's a density, there's a coldness at times to it and the feeling of separation and isolation that arises from our, our sense of identity with our experience. That sense of identity. And that solidity that's there at that level in that way of experiencing starts to shift when we connect with a, another way of seeing without denying again that there's a certain appropriate reality of that way of seeing too. But that there's another and perhaps more profound that reveals that, that the process of our inner being, the process of life, is in fact something in a flow. But there's a movement, there's a, there's a, a process of constant shifting, changing and transformation that's going on. That we can see rather directly in the, you know, the obvious movement of our body from that of a small baby through a child, teenager, adult, middle-aged, moving towards elderly. And this body, it changes. There's not a sudden point where the child becomes an adult, where the teenager becomes middle-aged. There's not a point where it happens. It's all like a, um, a seed that produces a flower. There's, there isn't a point where the seed becomes the flower. We think about a seed and a flower. We have these two places that we locate in the process as specific things. But in fact, the seed in its germination doesn't even become a shoot at some distinct, distinct point. The seed, the shoot, the plant, the flower. There's a process, there's a flow. That only by thinking about it and cutting it up in time do we isolate seed and flower. But this flow is actually, this process, this movement is unbroken is unbroken. If we look at a river, and I was a couple of weeks ago walking along the, the banks of the Dart, up in Dartmoor here, after we'd had some very heavy rain, it was beautiful, the autumn colours and the, the, the river was very swollen, just really feeling its power and the force of it flowing, and quite an awesome spectacle, quite lovely spend just the whole day walking up and down the river. At one point, my friends and I, who I was walking with, we just stopped and sort of reflected on the fact that 
this river that we were looking at, that all of the water that was there right then was in the next moment gone and replaced by something completely different. Never again for that water to come through that particular place in the river. Again, ever probably. Some of it might get back, much of it may never even come to that place again. And, and just the sense of, what is the river? What is the river? Because we see the water's changing, it's flowing, it's moving. Sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's muddy. Sometimes it's fast and sometimes it's slow. And if you think that might sound a little bit like your mind, that may not be a coincidence. But certainly that could be a description of the river. Fast and slow, clear and muddy. Floating debris at times and other times rather clear of obstructions. But it seems that the nature of the river isn't the water because the water is just passing through in its nature, in its way. It, it sort of, it just moves along. But perhaps more one might sense, one might say, what, what is the river? That the river is the, that, that potentiality, that possibility for the flow to occur. That it's the, it's that, it's that foundation, it's that basis whereby the flow, the movement, the river, that appears, the appearance of the river, the water gathering together and moving through, whereby that is made possible. And in some ways this is more essentially what the river is than the water. Although, of course, the water is part of it. And there's this, this flow of movement from the skies, in fact as that water comes from the sky in the form of rain, falls on the land, runs into the streams, into the rivers, to the ocean. And from the ocean, returns up to the sky to fall again. So which is the river? Is it the ground, the channel between two hills, the valley in which the water flows? Is it the water that flows through it? Or is it something else? that makes all of that possible. Because our life is a flow like a river. Our existence is a, a movement like water from the ocean, through the air, through the river and returning from birth to death. It's a flow in that way. And what can we say of it? What can we say of it? in seeing that flow and not fixing onto the water that happens to be flowing through right at this moment not making too much of whether it's in flood or whether it's a drought at any given time whether the water seems to be rather clear and sweet to drink or muddy and obscured by debris if we identify with the water, identify with the experience of what's going on in our lives. And we don't question that process. We don't really look and see what's happening in that process. We bind ourselves to an absolute reality of birth and death. 
we bind ourselves to a to a position where where what we are will be annihilated where what we are will be completely and forever destroyed and when we bind ourselves in that way to that position in any way that what we are is this mind and body and that this mind and body even if we don't like to admit it this mind and body will end up completely gone and when we bought this place it was um, the center Gaia house it was regarded as something of a something of a, uh, a an attraction and an asset for us that in fact there was a there was a consecrated cemetery on the grounds and most of the other people who were interested in buying it were rather um, less enthused by the idea of buying a cemetery as part of the property but it was actually something that we've appreciated and just two weeks ago there was a burial here of one of the sisters who who was um, a member of the order of nuns who had this place before we bought it and one can go out there and one sees there's just a little um, gathering of flowers there there's no nameplate rather in a way, uh, appropriate anonymity, namelessness. Though perhaps the name Clark will come. And it's sort of striking, I notice, it's just, you know, the slightly raised mound of, of sod, of earth and grass. And that, that little raised amount of earth and grass is what's been displaced by putting a body in there. So we can't see the body. But that, that's gone back to the earth. Gone back to the earth. Is that all there is? Is that the lot of this existence? Because that question is bound up with the question of who am I? The question of what is the truth of all of this? To see beyond that identification, to see beyond our answers to the question who am I? To see beyond it to the truth of even where that very question comes from. What in our being do we connect with when we really connect with the question? To begin to explore that in our practice. Ask us to cease to be so concerned with or fascinated by what is going on by the content of the experience. Because it's the fascination with or the fascination with the content, with what's going on, is what's is very much driven by the significance we give it as defining who we are, as defining the quality and the reality of our experience. And so we need to use the experiences that come, the, the, the particular things that we're in contact with, to focus, to connect with. We can learn a lot from them and from that process of connecting with them. And yet also just having a sense that maybe the, the deepest, most profound answers are not revealed in the experience, in the object, in the particular thing which we are in contact with. And often that's where we're looking for the answer. That's where we're looking for for whatever it is we might seek, whether it be peace or happiness, awakening or freedom. Often looking in the experience, 
Is this the one? Is that the one? Could it be the next one? Was it the last one? Did I miss it? And just actually more resting in the sense of the fact of experiencing itself. Having a sense of recognition, of acknowledgement, of being in touch with the fact that this is happening at all. As being perhaps more significant, as having maybe more to reveal than the particular thing that's happening. There's a place of stillness that we find in that process. Or perhaps it might be better said to say that it finds us in that process. We're in resting in just the seeing and the, the knowing of the seeing. Seeing here a metaphor for experiencing. And the experiencing of what is occurring and being aware that this is happening. In which through not being or becoming the event, the experience, the thing, through not becoming it, what starts to shift is that rather than a feeling of I, me, self, moving through life, moving through life with all its attendant joys and terrors, rather than moving through life, it becomes much more a sense of a place of stillness from which life is moving through us. So the life flows on. The water moves in the river, as it always has. One can learn to skillfully work with the river, work with the water, work with the movement of our life. And yet there's a sense in which the river is flowing through us rather than us being carried along by it. And the sense of, of stillness in which life is moving, the sense of this potentiality which invites the flow of life to move through, which allows it without obstruction, without demand, and yet takes a real interest in it. This is the process whereby we perhaps come to discover the truths that lie at the heart of the question, who am I? I'd like to read a, a poem to finish by a Native American elder, Red Hawk. called The Time Comes When It Is Easier to Die. We have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig, even when we have had enough. And it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold. The grey clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong.
friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year into your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken while death storms and rages all around you stealing everything in sight but only left holding a bag full of bones. The inquiry of our life is the the digging through the layers of our being, through the layers of our existence. We could say digging for the gold of truth. To find the gold before death finds you. And then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. While death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight but only left holding a bag full of bones. So could we just sit quietly for a minute, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.